Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments, commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring <coughs> and our offspring's offspring and the offspring of your people, Israel, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Amen. The second chapter of Breshit. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all their array. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he abstained on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and, and sanctified it, because on it he abstained from all of his work that God created to make. Every one of us said that last night when we stood up to say Kiddush. These are the products of the heaven and the earth when they were created on the day that Adonai God made heaven and earth. Now all the trees of the field were not yet on the earth, and all the herb of the field had not yet sprouted. For Adonai God had not yet sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to work the soil. A mist ascended from the earth and watered the whole surface of the soil. And Adonai God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he blew into his nostrils the soul of life, and man became a living being. Adonai, God, planted a garden in Eden to the east and placed there the man whom he had formed. And Adonai, God, caused to sprout from the ground every tree that was pleasing to the sight and good for food, also the tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and bad. A river issues from Eden to water the garden, and from there it is divided and becomes four headwaters. Incidentally, we named the mikvah, um, the mikvah Shiloah, after the famous mikvah, the large mikvah in Yerushalayim that people went to on a regular basis. And it says about mikvah Shiloah in the uh, Encyclopedia Judaica that, um, that when those waters of the mikvah would overflow, it would overflow and water the king's garden. It would flow out and water the king's garden. Our hope for our mikvah is that those spiritual waters would overflow from it and water the garden out here and bring, bring forth life. Amen. The name of the first is Pishon, the one that encircles the whole land of Havilah, where, there is, where the gold is. The gold of that land is, land is good. The Bedalok is there and the Shoham stone. The name of the second river is Gihon, the one that encircles the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidakel, the one that flows towards the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Adonai God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to guard it. And Adonai God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and bad you must not eat thereof. For on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adonai God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper corresponding to him. 
Now Adonai God had formed out of the ground every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call each one. And whatever the man called each living creature, that remained its name. And the man assigned names to all the cattle and to all the birds and to all the sky and to every beast of the field. But as for man, he did not find a helper corresponding to him. So Adonai God cast this deep sleep upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his sides and filled in his flesh in its place. Then Adonai God fashioned the side that he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This time it is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This shall be called woman, for from man was she taken. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now, there's an interesting insight here, uh, something that I would like to point out from the Rambel, that we've already heard about God forming man. We heard that last week. In fact, we talked about how man was created first, male and female. We, we, we went over that last week's Jerosh, which was phenomenal and amazing. Amen. Right. So why now do we have a discussion, a reiteration of God making man? Of course, we could say, well, he talks about uh, separating woman from man. All that's true. But on a, on a more so level, what we have here at the beginning of this chapter is the discussion of the Shabbat, the, impl- the implementation of the Sabbath. We're going to learn some things, Bezrat today, Hashem today, about the, the Sabbath being the soul of creation. So the reason he brings man into the discussion is because inasmuch as the creation has a soul, it's called the Shabbat, man was created from the dust and given the Ruach HaKodesh, or given the Ruach, rather, of God, the soul of man. So there's a correlation between creation having a soul and man having a soul. That's what we're going to see here. I also want to point out that when you stand up to say the, um, uh, the, the Kiddush of Shabbat, Erev Shabbat, we, we begin by saying, Vahi Boker, right? Or excuse me, we say, Vahi Erev Vahi Boker. We begin there, and then we say that quietly. And then when we actually begin to say the Kiddush, we begin with the very last two words of the first chapter, Yom Hashishi. And then we continue into the second chapter, Vekulu Hashemayim. Now, everybody who says Kiddush, uh, at least the leader, there's varying customs, but the leader, the one who is actually saying Kiddush, and everybody says Amen, should stand up. Because when we are saying Kiddush, we are acting as if we are a witness to the universe. And in antiquity, when you would come before the Sanhedrin and you would say, uh, you, you would be a witness, uh, as it were, then you would stand before the Sanhedrin, quite to the contrary that we do today in our court of law, the witness sits. But in the court of law in antiquity, you would stand before the court. So therefore, we stand before all of creation and we say Kiddush and we make a declaration that in fact it was God who created the heavens and the earth and not it wasn't the Big Bang Theory or it wasn't some accident, but it was in fact the Creator. The reason that um, there's many people who say who would encourage 
people to say this, at least this first part, in Hebrew, and here's the reason. When we look at the Hebrew, we say Yom Hashishi Vekulu Hashemayim. The first letters of those four words spell the Yudke Vavke, the divine name. So when we stand up to make Kiddush, we are acting as a witness. We're saying that God created the heavens and the earth, number one. Number two, because the Yudke Vavke was involved, that he made the earth as an act of mercy. And number three, we're invoking the divine name at our Shabbos table when we say Yom Hashishi Vekulu Hashemayim, when we start out that way by saying this. Now, at our table, just our personal custom, everybody stands because we all want to witness, but uh, I leave that up to the individual families of how they want to do that at their house. I also want to point out something that Mayam Lois, today, by the way, we're going to be primarily in the Midrash Rabbah, chapters 10 and chapters 11. But I'm also going to share some insights from Mayam Loez and drop a little bit, maybe one or two, one or two from uh, Rabbeinu Bakya. <clears throat> so this is what uh, Mayam Loez brings down about when we say Vekulu, talking about being a witness and what have you. It says, um, when a person stands to say Vekulu, Talking about the Abba. Now, I want you to think about the man of the house, typically, the Abba, the man of the house. He's gone around his table. If he has children, he has laid his hands on the, on the heads of his children and spoken a, a blessing over them. And then he's put, he, spoke, he speaks a blessing over his wife. He, uh, I'd say he lays hands on her, but I don't want to get too uh, forward, you know. Uh, but he, he speaks a blessing over his wife. So the question becomes, who speaks the blessing over the man? Does the man leave without anybody speaking a brock over him? The answer is no. It says, when a person stands up and says, Vekulu, two angels place their hands on his head, and they bless him and say, your guilt is removed, your sin is atoned, according to Isaiah 6 and verse 7. Wow. See, we just thought this, you know, this is why when people say silly things like, why do y'all want to do all those Jewish traditions? This is why. This is why. You say, I don't want to do all that stuff. I just want to do what the Bible says. And then you don't have two angels blessing you every Friday night. (laughs) Right? It's true, isn't it? Why are we so silly? We're so silly in our little selves. All right, so I want us to turn now. We're going to look. Well, you you can turn to here if you have the Midrash Rabbah. Our first insight. My little tabs here. Driving Naomi crazy. And... uh, Ahmet said, I'm trying to make a menorah. <clears throat> it's all right, though. A time of searching. Midrash Rabbah, chapter 9, Saman 1. It says, and God saw that he, had ma- that he had made, and behold, it was very good. We're going to begin looking at the very end of the first chapter. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Midrash Rabbah says, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Rabbi Levi opened his discourse on this passage with an exposition of the following verse, one of my favorite of all. It says, It is the honor of God to conceal a matter. It's the honor of kings to search out a matter. From Proverbs 25.2. It's the honor of God to conceal a matter. Some translations say it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. 
It's the honor of kings or it's the glory of kings to search it out. We should be people who are searching the scriptures diligently on a daily basis. Why? Because it's like we're digging for gold and precious stones. You know, we're doing a year through uh, Sheath, And I'm not surprised by, by what I'm about to tell you, but um, even though we're doing a year and we're essentially taking a chapter a week and going through it, when I stand up here to talk to you, I'm only able to scratch the surface of the chapter. We could easily do two years through, through Sheath. We could probably do three. We could probably do five. We could probably do 20 because there's so much in it that we don't really get to discuss. Rabbi Levi said in the name of Rabbi Hama Barhanina from the beginning of the book of Genesis until here applies the beginning of the verse. It's the honor of God to conceal a matter. But from here on applies the end of the verse. It's the honor of kings to search a matter out. What, what does this mean? It means that up until this point, God has taken all the primordial light of creation and he has concealed it. He sheathed it, as it were, in the sun and, the, and so on, and he's hidden it in the Sabbath. So now our job is to go out and find the hidden light. This is why Yeshua said, if you search the scriptures, you'll find that they speak of me. Why? Because in the scriptures is the hidden light of that primordial creation, which is Mashiach, the light of the world. This is the great travesty that people have been taught, don't worry about that Old Testament. That's why they have lights out. Because they're searching darkness. Oh, Rabbi, do you mean that because they spend 99.9% of their time in the letters of, the, of, of Paul, that that's darkness? No, I'm just saying that the light of Torah is in the Torah, not in the man's letters. Now, he's illuminating Torah, all right, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But if you really want to find the light, you've got to go to the source. You don't go digging for jewelry at Zales. You don't go digging for diamonds at Zales. You go to Zales to buy diamonds. If you go to Zales and dig for diamonds, you'll get arrested. Right? You got to go, if you want to dig for diamonds, you've got to go to the place where the diamonds exist. And then they can be yours when you find them rather than paying for them. So it says, meaning it is the honor of the words of Torah which are compared to kings, as it says, through me kings will reign. In uh, Proverbs 8.15, and it just so happens that in the footnotes it says that in this particular proverb, the Torah is speaking, the Torah is personified, it says here actually says in the footnotes of the Midrash Shabbat, the speaker in the Proverbs, this uh, Proverbs 8.15, the speaker in the Proverbs chapter is the Torah personified. So we have a precedent that there is such thing as, a, as the Torah personified. If you happen to listen to the Aliyah this week, the Aliyah day, you would have heard me talk about the fact that allegorically when Abraham was fighting against the kings, that that was an allegory of the five kings representing the five spiritual senses fighting against the four kings, which are the four elements of, of nature, our carnal nature, and that there were, there's a, a, a battle that goes on. And uh, the long story, the long upshot of that was that it said in the insights, 
uh, that Rabbi Monk brought down that it required the incarnation of the divine law to give us the victory over the carnal nature. So there's a precedent in Judaism that the Torah has to be personified in order to give us the victory. Torah can't, cannot just remain an abstract idea within one's thought process. You have to actualize it. It has to become, become personified. Why do you think Yeshua said that greater works than these shall you do? Why? Because we become likened to Yeshua. How do we become likened to Yeshua? Because we're running around doing miracles? Well, perhaps that's, that's a possibility. But miracles don't happen every, every day. They, that didn't happen in the book of Acts. The, the people in the book of Acts didn't run around just, you know, honey, I'm hungry. Um, you are? Would you like some uh, beef stew? Yes, I would. And boom, beef stew. That's not how they live their life. We read about all these miracles in Scripture, and sometimes we forget that there are decades between them. So what does it mean to live like Yeshua lived, to be like Yeshua on the earth? The answer is to live a Torah life. Because he's the living Torah, living his life out, and therefore when you live out the Torah, you are personifying the Torah. Chapter 10 of Midrash Shabbat begins... Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their hosts. Uh, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their hosts. I I, I heard an anti-missionary, it's been a a few months ago, was watching um, one of those videos where it's a man on the street kind of a thing, and the rabbi, who is an anti-missionary, confronted a pastor and ate his lunch ate his lunch, tore up the bag, and took his lunch money for tomorrow. (laughs) And it was sad because I'm watching that. I have no interest in debate, but I'm watching that, and I'm thinking this is sad because the rabbi is throwing out things, and the Christian pastor, who seemed to be a very nice man, a a man who loves God, had no answers because all he's got is Paul's letters and has no idea what he's talking about. He, he waded into Judaism with belief in the Messiah, who's a Jewish Messiah, and this rabbi just showed up and ate his lunch and left him just walked away, and the, the look on the, the expression on the pastor's face was like, what just happened? Just got hit by a theological bus. And one of the things that this rabbi was saying was like, you believe in a man. And the problem with that is that God cannot be limited. So therefore, when you believe in a man being the Messiah, being a man being divine, you're, you are te- you're teaching. I'm just going to destroy what his argument in just a second. But you, what you believe is, is that the divine came into a limited place and became limited. Therefore, you know, You've just limited God, and therefore it cannot happen because you can't limit. God has no limit. And so the the guy didn't know what to say. He's like, because that's true in his world. Because number one, to, to begin with, the pastor, who's a good man, I'm sure, and loves God, believes that God came to abolish the Torah. So therefore, God, by his very theology, he's preaching that God has a limit. Because when God said, no, no, stick with me here, because God, when God said it's, it's, it's eternal, that there comes a point when that's not true anymore. 
No, so you just limited God. See, God says in his word that my Torah, my law, the law of Moses, is eternal. So therefore, when you come in and say, well, there's a point where eternal ends, that means there's a point where the eternal God can end. Because if eternal is not eternal, if eternal sometimes becomes not eternal, then you've just placed a limit on the limitless God. And we get excited about that. That we've just made God have a cutoff point, an expiration date. God's word has an expiration date? If God's word has an expiration date, what's the expiration date of the letters of a man named Paul? Those went out of date a long time ago. I bet that's not even organic milk. You know, organic milk lasts forever. We've had, we have organic milk in our fridge right now. My daughter said, Dad, I can't smell have a little sinus. Is this good? And I'm like, maybe we have this in here for six months. <laughs> it's still good. <laughs> Adas is like, great. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Just kidding, honey. So it says here, now, now, that's what I just expressed to you. Everything that I just said is all the Greek mind, the Roman mind. If you'll forgive me, it's the carnal mind. Now we're going to get into the spiritual mind, which is a.k.a. Jewish mind. This is how Judaism thinks of God's word versus the Greek. Greek in Roman is always finite, which is why their empires don't exist anymore. Judaism is infinite, which is why we're still here today. <laughs> okay? And you can't kill us. We're like Obi-Wan Kenobi. Even if you strike me down, I'll become greater. <laughs> it is written to everything finite, I haven't seen an end, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Psalm 119:96. Everything has a limit. Even the heavens and the earth have a limit. Even the heavens and the earth have an expiration date. But this is, this is what it says next. Except for one thing that does not have a limit. And what is this? The Torah. The Torah lasts forever, my friends. You know why? Because it was here before we were. This is why when they said, you're not, they, they said to Yeshua, you're not greater than Abraham, are you? You're 50 years old. You say he's seen you. Are you seeing him? And this is why Yeshua said, before Abraham was, I am. Because, see, the Mashiach, the Torah, existed before there was an existence. Before there was a universe for Captain Kirk to explore, there was Torah. Right? This, the, the limitless Torah is the point. And see, this is the thing. When you understand that Yeshua is the Torah made flesh, you've just... See, what the, what the pastor could have said is, Rabbi, listen, we know that he came in the form of a man, but actually he's the living Torah, and therefore the Torah has no limit, as it says in Midrash Rabbah Breshit, chapter 10, Simon 1. So Mashiach has no limit, even though he's in a container that has limits, like the temple we'll get to in a second. This is referred to in the Midrash Shabbat as lifting the veil. It says, um, Shem Mishmuel, 
contends that the tohu and bohu mentioned in the creation story refers to a more subtle form of primitiveness. By the sixth day of creation, he explains the world had been filled with all its necessary components, but it still lacked coherence. There was no unifying force to pull everything together. That crucial element came only with the Shabbat, which is referred to as the soul of creation. See, this is why you have 10,000 denominations. This is why you have all the confusion that exists out there in, in the world, because there's no Torah to pull everything together. And Shabbat is likened to the Torah. This is why Yeshua said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, because the two are almost synonymous with one another. This is why that when you begin to become Torah observant, it almost always happens because you begin to keep the Sabbath. And when you cease to be Torah observant, it almost always happens, God forbid, when you cease to keep the Shabbat. So this is a very, this is a rabbinical loving warning to everybody. Don't let, don't let the enemy steal your Shabbat. And it happens all kind of ways. All kind of ways. The enemy is sly and wants to steal your Sabbath. The boss threatens you. You have to come in. It's required. If you don't come in, I'll fire you. That's against the law. Can't do that. Can't fire me for religious belief. I'm sorry. Go ahead and fire me. <laughs> because of religious belief. A lot of people get scared. It's intimidating. Or the professor says, you have to come in. It's Shabbat. I know, but I, I require you to do this class on your religious day. Mm -mm. Sorry. I'll give you an F if you don't come in. Give me that F. See what happens. Oh, I know. You get, you're terrified. Shaking in your boots right now. Or that cell. Oh, the cell is only on Saturday. And honey, we need that thing. Yeah, it's only on Saturday. Right? All that stuff that happens. Everything the enemy wants you to. And the next thing, you, you miss a Shabbat. Then you miss the next Shabbat. Then you miss the next Shabbat. Next thing you know, you're, you're shot. You're no longer Shabbat. You're shot. This came with the Sabbath. It talks about here that the Sabbath, in the, in the Insights article, that the Sabbath is the breath of life that entered creation. Filling countless aspects of existence with a common spirit and common purpose, the Sabbath integrated the world much as the human soul integrates one's body with all parts contributing to the unified whole. whole. Since this unity was absent during the first six days, the world was still, in a sense, suffering from the desolation of Tohu and Bohu, and that veiled the fine workmanship of heaven and earth. In other words, that you had creation, but creation was nothing. It was like a lifeless human body laying there in the dirt until the soul entered it, and it became a living being. Sabbath is the soul of creation. That's why your six working days are utterly meaningless without a Shabbat. You can work seven days, my friend, all you want to, and you'll never have the success that you're looking for until you get the soul involved. See, because keeping the Sabbath, contrary to what you've been taught most likely, is actually walking in the Spirit. See, keeping Torah, this is the great lie that the enemy tells you. Remember, one of the names of, the, of Lucifer I taught this week, one of his names is uncircumcised. One of the names of Lucifer is uncircumcised. 
That's why I've said that if, you, if somebody's out there and they're preaching that you don't have to get circumcised anymore, it's not for today, it's been done away with, they're literally, if you look at it that way, just follow me, don't get angry with me, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to help you, just we're trying to get, bring things into focus, clarity. If you think about what I just said, that one of the names of Satan is uncircumcised, if you find yourself or someone finds themselves preaching against circumcision, they are literally then preaching in the name of Lucifer. Oh, I know. We think about that as, you know, I don't, but I don't go to the church of Satan, do you? Does it matter where it is if you're preaching the message? I know. It's, this is the problem. My wife always says, honey, it's why we're not a thousand people. It's because you talk like that. Amen. My wife just wants to make people happy. She wants to make, make bacon a cake or something. I don't. She told me one time, why can't we have blueberry scones? I'm just kidding. I'm just, kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. All right. I'll let, I know, right? Sleeping on Zake and Rayford's couch tonight. All right, let's go back for a second, shall we? Just take a little side because this, the topic today um, revolves around the Shabbat to a great extent. But I do want to equip us as well because in the Midrash Shabbat, there is this story that I want to bring down that will help us discuss what I just brought out about the rabbi and his discussion about the limit, limiting God, that God comes in a physical manifestation and somehow that's a limitation. The problem with that, and again, if you don't understand rabbinic literature, if you're not studying, let me, let, let, me, let me just clarify what I just said. You have to get into a Jewish mind. I don't want to lead people into a false hope and think that you can still exist outside of the religion of Judaism and just study Jewish literature and somehow that will help you. Because that's also a Greek mind. A Greek mind is very clinical. We take the frog out of the pond, back to the lab, and dissect him. The Jewish mind says we go to the pond, and we live in the pond, and we ex examine the frog in the pond. So a lot of people say, well, I, I want to remain outside the religion of Judaism, but I want to study the literature. It doesn't work that way. You've got to be immersed in it. You can't dip your hand into the mica and sprinkle for yourself. You've got to get into the water. Okay, well, with that said, it is important to study Jewish literature because there's so much within ancient Jewish sources that confirm Yeshua, and why not? First of all, the whole concept of Messiah is Jewish, specifically Pharisaical. It's not just Jewish, it's Pharisaical. If you even believe that there was a Messiah or that there could be a Messiah or that there is a concept called Messiah, you are a Pharisee. Incidentally, if you pray before you eat, you're a Pharisee. If you believe in water baptism, you're a Pharisee. If you believe in communion, you're a Pharisee. If you believe in angels, death, resurrection, demons, you're a Pharisee. If you believe in heaven or hell, you're a Pharisee. So if you hate the Pharisees, stop hating on yourself. 
If you believe that the Bible is the Bible, you're a Pharisee because the Pharisees gave it to you. If you don't believe in Pharisees, I want my Bible back. All right. Back to influencing people and making friends. <laughs> they said, Doc, why do you follow wide earth? He's my friend. He's got lots of friends. Doc said, I don't. Y'all see the movie. It's, it's holy. Here it is. Midrash Rabbah, 10, chapter 10, Simon 7. It's a good movie, though. It's not... It's a bad movie. It's a bad movie. Doc Holliday is a bad, bad man. <laughs> the temple bleeds. Y'all want to hear this? The temple bleeds. The wicked Roman commander Titus, this is in the Midrash Rabbah, the wicked Roman commander Titus who destroyed the second temple entered the Holy of the Holies with his sword drawn in his hand and he split the two curtains. He took two harlots and cohabitated with them on top of the altar, on top of Torah scrolls, as it were. When he split the curtains, his sword emerged full of blood. Some say it was from the blood of the holy offerings. And some say it was from the blood of the bull and he goat offered on Yom Kippur. Because the reason they say that is because some of that blood, especially the blood of the Yom Kippur offerings, was sprinkled on the curtain. And the sages say that when you do that, you're literally sprinkling it upon the face. It's called panim, the face. So that the, the word panim means face, and so they would sprinkle it on the face. So you can imagine that God's throne is the face of God, and the face of God has blood on it from the atonement. It says, seeing this, Titus profaned and blasphemed God. He took all the vessels of the holy temple and he fashioned the curtains into shape of baskets and took them back to Rome, what have you. Now, it says in the footnotes, he claimed based on the blood that came from the curtain that he had killed himself, which is a euphemism. Himself is a euphemism for the almighty God. Okay, what are we talking about here? This is the parochet, or this curtain rather, is symbolic of the parochet. The reason that it's in front of the ark is because the ark is sim symbolic of the Kodesh HaKodeshim, the Holy of Holies. What was in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Why was the Ark of the Covenant called the Ark of the Covenant? Because God's Holy Torah was inside of it. The, the Holy Torah is what made the Ark holy, which is what made the Holy of Holies holy, which is made what made everything holy and righteous. It's the soul of the temple, as we're about to find out. And the Ark of the Covenant is God's throne. God's throne is not a chair. God's throne is the Ark of the Covenant, specifically the top cover of the Ark of the Covenant, which sometimes is called the mercy seat, beneath the wings of the cherubim where the Shekinah was. And so this curtain, it says in the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 10, and verse 25, it points out that this curtain is the body of Mashiach. Why does it say that? Because whoever wrote Hebrews was a Kabbalist. When Titus came into the temple, he profaned the temple, he took out his saber, his sword, and he thrust it and cut this curtain, the body of Mashiach. And when he did, he pulled out his sword. There's blood on his sword. The temple bleeds. 
Now, the anti-missionary said, you can't limit God. You put him into a form, and et cetera, et cetera. Somebody might say, well, how can God die? If Mashiach is basically Hashem manifest, how can God die? How can the temple be destroyed? No, no, because the temple is the manifestation of Hashem on the earth. That's what the sages teach. This is why they were. This is why the ancient, the ancient, ancient sages, the sages of the initial Sanhedrin, that were with Moses, were slightly hesitant to build the tabernacle. They did it because it was God's will, but they were a little bit apprehensive of it because they said to Moses, "Didn't God say, don't make an image of me?" Because why? They understood that the tabernacle was an image of God. So if the tabernacle is the image of God on the earth, then how can we destroy it? How can God die? How can God be destroyed? So it says here in the insights to this Midrash, the temple exists in two realms. In the physical realm, it is a beautiful edifice constructed of finest material, furnished within the most desirable vessels of gold, in the spiritual realm, it is the source of all holiness in the world. Did not Yeshua, remind me, refresh my memory, didn't Yeshua say that he was the temple? Tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Did he not say that? Yes. Why? Because the temple is the source of all holiness in the world. It is where the divine presence rests and God reveals his attachment to and affection for the Jewish people when they do his bidding and perform the temple service. The temple, listen to this. I'm reading to you, not adding any words. I'm reading to you from the Midrash Rabbah, the, the insights, that is, to the Midrash Rabbah. The temple may be compared to a human being. A wondrous physical body housing the glorious but invisible soul. See, the temple is the body, as it were, and the soul is the Ruach HaKodesh. Are we limiting God by putting him into a building? No, of course not. In other words, God had already manifested before Yeshua came on the scene, and he did that vis-a-vis -vis the temple. Every time you went to the Beis HaMikdash, you were going to the image of God. It says the spiritual aspect of the temple is what lifts it beyond the limitations of the physical world. It's... It's not the building, it's the soul within the building is what lifted it beyond. See, if there hadn't been a holy of holies, there wouldn't have been a need for a temple. This is evidenced by many miracles that were resident in the temple. Wait a minute, when you went to the temple, miracles happened? When you went to Yeshua, miracles happened? Wait a minute, there's a correlation? When you went to the temple, miracles happened. Eyes were open, ears were open, the people were healed. Didn't happen in the second temple. Happened in the first temple. You know why not in the second temple? There was no ark. In the second temple, we had removed the Torah. So all we had was a dead edifice. And, this is good. <laughs> not only had we removed the Torah, 
But the people who were running the dead edifice were the Sadducees who did not believe in the oral Torah to begin with. They were word of God only people. They were preaching against everything that Yeshua the Pharisee preached for. And today's message of those who claim to believe in the Messiah is actually the message of the Sadducees, the ones that Yeshua denounced. See, if somebody rebukes you, that's a correction. We rebuke our children. But if somebody denounces you, that's a rejection. We don't renounce our children. We rebuke them. And the purpose of rebuking them is to straighten them up, get them to fly right. So it says, Thus, for example, the holy ark and the holy of holies did not take up any physical space. Wait a minute. It didn't take up physical space. The ark was physical, was it not? But are we limiting God? See, see, this is, see, instead of opening up to the book of Romans, and again, no offense to the apostle Paul because I believe that he was a righteous dude who followed Torah, but instead of opening up to the book of Romans, we need to open up more to the book of Midrash so we can understand what Yeshua taught. You know why I say that? Because what do you think Paul was studying to write his letter? Boom, what do you think his source was? How do I know that? Rabbi, how do you know that? How would I know, Rabbi, right now, you're not smoking crack? Because Paul taught in the book of Corinthians about a rock that followed us around the wilderness, and that rock was the Mashiach. That rock was the well that gave us water. Where is that found? I'm sorry, where was that? Midrash. So instead of reading the source, we're reading somebody who talked about the source. And the thing is, is that we're, people are so far removed from their, from their Judaism that they don't even know that. They've never heard of the Midrash until now. There's nobody out there. I'm not tooting our own horn. Believe me, I am literally nothing. Just ask my wife. But there is nobody, nada, nadie, teaching this out there to the masses to encourage people. I got to hurry. I got three hours. Okay. <laughs> it says, and when the festival pilgrims, we're not even done with the blood temple thing yet, so stick with me. We're not, we're not off this topic yet. And when the festival pilgrims would fill the courtyard to capacity, standing shoulder to shoulder, they would miraculously be able to prostrate themselves with ample room. Utterly defying the limitations of physical law and constraints. So wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeshua, excuse me, God's spirit was in a physical form and yet it had no limitations. The Ruach HaKodesh was manifest in a physical form called the temple and then on a micro level, the ark, and yet had no limitations. What the pastor could have told the rabbi is, Rabbi, actually, there was another instance in which God came manifest in a physical form 
and yet had no limitations, and that's called the base of Middash. Now, it says, indeed, the spiritual aspect of the temple was like a life force within it. Thus, we find that the ark bears aloof, aloft its bearers, so to, so to 35a. In other words, when the ark was carried by the Levites, it actually carried the Levites. See, when people, this is the light. See, the enemy is so crafty. Because he's told people that the law is a burden. The exact opposite of what the Bible actually teaches. See, the Bible teaches that when we carried the law, it carried us. We, people say you can't, nobody can do the law. The exact opposite of what the Word of God says. Because it says in Deuteronomy, don't say that this is too hard. Isn't it astounding that we preach the exact opposite of what God said? May there be teshuva for everyone. It says, and we find this principle, that chai noshe et atzmo, a living being bears itself aloft, Shabbos 94a, and its golden vine produces fruit of gold, Yoma 21b, indicating of the inanimate force or animating force within it. Now this is, here's the, our, next, our next drop. How can God die? At the time of the destruction, okay, who killed the Mashiach? Who did the physical killing? We know that we turned him over to the Romans, but who did the actual killing? The actual killing was done by pagans, was it not? Romans. So it says, at the time of the destruction, our nation's sins had banished the temple's spirit. We had turned the temple over to the nations. Because of our sin, we banished the temple's spirit. Causing the temple, and I'm, I'm reading here. Let me, let me start from the beginning because I, I like to interject and I'm not going to. It says, at the time of the destruction, our nation's sin had banished the temple spirit, causing the temple to die. Like a person whose soul leaves his body, the temple's soul, it says in quotes, had departed, leaving behind a lifeless corpse. It's talking about the temple. What our enemies destroyed was an empty shell a still glorious physical edifice devoid of inner life. What the Romans killed was just a beautiful edifice, an empty shell. Mashiach didn't die. His soul, just like the soul of the temple, had left because of our sin. Because of our sin. Because of our sin. Just like my friends, that you don't actually die. Your physical shell will die, but your soul will live on. The question is, where will you live? Will you live in Gehenna or will you live in Shemayim? This is why these issues are critical, and we've got to dispense 
with our filthy, trashy, disgusting desire to hang on to false theology just because we don't want to look ourselves in the mirror and say, you've been wrong for 20 years. Or because it's nostalgic. I like the way we do whatever we do, whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism or churchism or whatever it is. Or for that matter, synagogism. Because we know there's a lot of Orthodox communities out there that need the life of Mashiach, do we not? We've got to stand up and say, this is too critical for us just to sit back and say, well, I've got a PhD in blah, 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 blah. So what? That's just, you know, at the end of the day, nothing against college of any sort. But you do realize it's just a man teaching you, right? No matter what you're learning, right? It's just another human being who learned something from another human being who learned something from another human being who learned it from another human being who's now teaching you a human being. We act like we're going to learn from the oracle. And it's a lot of these same people out there that want us to go from capitalism to socialism. Because they're so brilliant. With this introduction, we come to the deeper meaning, it says, of our Midrash. Titus entered the Holy of Holies with his sword drawn and pierced the curtain of the parochet, the barrier in front of the Holy of Holies, which had housed the soul of the temple. Wait a minute. This... By the way, I said that this is the body of Mashiach, according to the Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. But also in, in the Midrash Rabbah to Eka, Book of Lamentations, it says that the parochet is the garment of God. It clothes God. Just like our skin clothes our body. And that when the parochet was, when, when the temple was destroyed, rather, that the parochet of God was torn. Why? Because it says God rent his holy garments. Some people ask the question, why when Yeshua was crucified was the parochet torn from the top to the bottom? It's because when a Jewish person's in mourning, he reaches up and greets, green, grabs his garment and rips him. Yeshua rent his garment when the Mashiach was destroyed. So wait a minute, this is the clothing of God and behind the clothing is a soul? So it says, it housed the soul and blood spurted forth indicating the departure of the temple's soul. Wait a minute, whoa. The image of blood coming out of the temple was an indication that the spirit of God had departed? So that when they stuck the spear in his side and blood and water came out, that was an indication that the spirit of the living God had departed. It's exactly what the temple's picture was. I'm not making this up, my friends. I'm reading this. 
When he saw the blood spurting from the curtain, Titus thought that he had killed himself. Again, the euphemism is that he killed God. Now, one more insight here to this particular topic. It says, the Midrash continues, that Titus consorted with the harlots on a Torah scroll and spread on top of the altar. A harlot is a spiritual metaphor for alien philosophies, antithetical to Torah truths. Brought down from Proverbs 2 and verse 16 and also Proverbs 7 and verse 5, with Rashi and Malbin commenting. So when we have philosophies or theologies that are antithetical to Torah observance, what we have is a harlot. It says, with his outrage, now listen to this, with his outrage, Titus asserted the dominance of the heretical philosophies over the Torah and the divine service of the temple. In other words, he was asserting his dominance that his pagan point of view was truth and that the law of Moses was dead. I want to ask you a question. Would you rather be somebody who serves faithfully in the, in the temple or would you rather be Titus, who desecrates the temple and boasts that he has slain God. Incidentally, the Tower of Babel, it says, and I'll conclude with this, that as they made their tower, the whole purpose of the tower was the war against God. See, a lot of times we don't realize it because there's a lot of conflict in our head and our hearts. A lot of time our our resistance to toward true Judaism is that we just really want to fight against God. Oh, I know, I know, I know. You're thinking, but I love God with my whole heart. I get it, I know. I've been there, my friends. I've wrestled with these very same concepts. How can you love God but wrestle against his word? We do it all the time. I'm convinced that teenagers love their parents. So y'all are already laughing because you know where I'm going. And yet they rebel against us all the time. Not mine, but others. Because we still believe in sacrifices at our house. It says when they got up to the tower that they shot arrows into the sky because they were trying to war against the heavenlies. And God allowed their arrows to fall back on them with blood on them to encourage them so that he could bring them to their proper destruction. So we've got, we've got to be careful that our theologies don't come back with blood on it and we think that it's good theology. We've got to stick with what's true because it's true. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. 